comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Please follow along in your Bibles or as the text is presented here on the screen. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Or flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I'd like to invite uh, Lori and Terry to come on up here and uh, to illustrate how the, the wind of the Spirit blows. Go ahead, you guys. Well, today is the conclusion of our blessed sermon series where we've been focusing on how we can use blessing to reach and restore the world. And um, I'm here today on the last day, but it's the end of our sermon series, but only the beginning of our church emphasis on um, using bless as a means for outreach and evangelism. So today we're focusing on sharing our stories. And Terry, will you share with us your story of um, sharing your story with your coworkers? Sure. Um, so years ago, I was working in an office and uh, developed a friendship with another woman who I ate lunch with, and she was a fellow mus- musician, so we had some things in common. And she started to um, ask me questions about my faith and about scripture. She knew I went to church, and um, I, I started to pray because she seemed eagerly speaking some or seeking some sort of spirituality and I had my small group praying and I just shared with her my life and listened to her questions and shared the parts of my faith story that were relevant to where she was at and if you remember the parable of the soils I would say her heart was very uh, fertile soil just really eager to accept 
the good news that I was sharing. But then um, co-workers started to be antagonistic against Christianity, openly speaking out against it. And between them and the media, her heart just went kind of cold. And uh, I ended up moving away out of state. And it was sad. But years later, I got a letter in the mail. And she said, I wanted you to know that one day recently I went to church and suddenly everything you said made sense. Mm -hmm. As though I was blind, but now I can see. And, and she gave her life to Christ and was thoughtful enough to send me a letter. So, so Terry, what advice would you have for those of us who might be reluctant or discouraged in sharing our stories? I would say keep praying and keep listening and eating together. If you're not eating, all eating is, is creating an opportunity to share your story, creating an opportunity for conversation, coffee. And God will make it apparent when their heart is receptive to hear your faith story. Um, they may respond and they may not. But you're planting seeds, and that's our job is to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to plant those seeds. And drought may set in, or you know those seeds may you may think they're being plucked away, but here it just may be dormant. And years later, the Holy Spirit may do the work, and it's really God's work to remove the blinders from people's eyes, not yours. You're you're mm -hmm. you're just sharing the good news. You're just planting seeds. So don't give up. God's the one at work. Hi, Olson family. <laughs> hey, uh, hi, hi, Mom. Thank you, yeah. Terry. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. We're happy to have the Olsons with us today, visiting from Colorado. All right. Thanks, Terry. Appreciate that. You can give Terry uh, a round of applause. Yeah. So I wanted to start with... Um, I might as well throw this away. Uh, it's not working, and I'm going to need that uh, to work. Nothing's happening. Oh, did it? Okay, there we go. Oh, you did. Okay. I don't know whether to bless or curse right now. <laughs> to bless is to bestow favor, goodness, and well-being. And the opposite, which would be curse is to bestow loneliness, emptiness, and alienation. So we kind of use that as our framework during this series. And which do we want to do, right? Come on. Okay, you guys are really on it this morning. Okay, so I have, I, there, is, there is a little humor in Scripture. So let's, uh, Brian, I need the next one up there. Okay, this is from Proverbs 27:14. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. <laughs> Solomon was not a morning person. <laughs> so try it out tomorrow morning. Get up at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, whatever, and go outside and yell into your neighbors, Hey, I want to bless you! And see how they respond to that. Oddly enough, 70% um, to 75% of Americans, now this is, this is based on at least one study that I came across, don't want to live next door to a born-again Christian. Hmm. You know what's really odd about that is that I've also seen statistics that say roughly 
35% of Americans are born-again Christians. Do the math. Some born-again Christians don't want to live next to born-again Christians. Ah. Maybe we understand why. If they're blessing us at 6 in the morning, whatever. I mean... But uh, it's, it's true. Uh, we have uh, at least uh, an image problem. Those, the words evangelical and born again are, I'm not sure, I, I, they don't fit. It's like clothes, you know, that you really don't want to wear in this day and age. Yeah, I was with uh, a guy recently. We were having a great conversation, and he, had, he finally you know, asked me what I do, and I, had, I told him, hey, I'm a pastor. And he says, oh, and I said, well, he was from Boston. I said, you know, his accent or whatever. I said, well, yeah, were you raised Catholic? And he says, no, I'm Jewish, and I'm an atheist. And uh, we had a, and I said, well, that doesn't, we can keep talking, can't we? He said, sure, sure. <laughs> as long as you didn't vote for Donald Trump, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> I said, okay, I can do that. I never tell people who I vote for anyway, so. Um, but he, he said, you aren't one of those born-again Christians, are you? And I said, well, I guess, you know, I really, I really kind of am, because I met Christ when I was 24 years old, and it was, it was kind of like being born again. And then he said to me, he says, but you're so nice. <laughs> he couldn't believe it, whatever. So born again, that that phrase gets used to mean really three things, more or less, uh, morally stringent, politically conservative, and emotionally wired, maybe. I mean, those are at least the three things that uh, come to mind when you think of the image of a a born-again Christian. So we have, if we look at Jesus in this passage, and we're going to use this passage to help us share our stories... But as we look at Jesus in this passage and what he's saying, it has nothing to do with being morally stringent, politically conservative, or emotionally wired. Nothing at all, or at least very indirectly. So what do we need to do? We come here to resensitize ourselves to the voice of Jesus. That's how I look at it each week. I need that. I need it each day. And so we want to hear his voice this morning. And we're in this, this is, Lori said it, this is the last of the B, begin with prayer, the L, listen with care, the E, eating together, the S, serving in love, and now sharing your story. Which of those five do you find most threatening? Are we in this sort of together? It is. And um, uh, on, uh, so I think it's good to acknowledge that this is, but in Terry's story, there things happen, and there's nothing, there's no greater thrill in life than to be part of God's activity as He reaches out in love. In your uh, worship folder is a. We've had one of these each week. This is the S that is talking about sharing your story. It's a good help. And on the back, there are suggestions, uh, very simple ideas, really, and then a place for you to write down. And, and Lori said this. This is something that we are not letting go of, this whole blessed thing. This is going to be part. It's a real simple way for us to remember what Jesus calls us to do to the world. And we can always be praying, listening. We can always be eating. I mean, with some of us, yeah, we have no problem with that one. And serving and then sharing. We're going to talk about that right now. I want to, I want to begin with the, the idea that gets lost in our um, 
maybe religious habits or whatever, or just life gets lost. And that is that if you are a Christian, if, and I'll, I'll even say that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you identify with him, then you are a miracle. Now, most people don't, just live with that. Let that, let that seed be planted in your soul and let it bear its fruit. Uh, the idea that you're a miracle, I mean, you're not boasting when you say that. You're, but for, for, the, for something to be born again, it has to happen to you. And in that happening to you, God is doing something amazing. And we all have a story to share. And it's about, and all of whatever credit goes to God. Okay? So start with that thought. And then, um, let's see, I don't have my clicker, so I'm going to just kind of do this, and that's my signal, yeah, that we're moving on. Uh, I want to get this outline to you, and it's Jesus and, and the fear of what others think. So we're going to see that in the story of Nicodemus. And then we'll go to what a complete non-sequitur. Non-sequitur simply means that doesn't logically follow what Jesus says to him doesn't follow what he, where he was going. It seems really out of whack. And then the third one we want to talk about, and this will be the application part, the person who is in front of you that you might share with. How's that going to, what are we going to do when we have that opportunity? Okay, the fear of what others think. I, 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 can we just skip that one? Because nobody suffers from that, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's big everywhere, right? It's not... I mean, we could, I could be speaking to any group, part of the human condition, the fear of what others think. Uh, just so you know, I live with a fair amount of that myself, and um, it's a real thing. All right, so verse 1, Nicodemus is, um, well, let's see who he is. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we know that he's a Pharisee, which means he's a part of a sect within Judaism, and he's a leader. He's on like Sammamish City Council, whatever group of 70 men, all men in those days, who were the cultural elite, well-educated, wealthy usually, all men, 70 of them. And that is where he gets, those are his peers, okay? That's where he's going to, uh, I'm going to use this phrase, get his identity structure from in life. And you'll see that. Uh, you'll see it in the next verse because he comes at night. Most uh, commentators believe that he came at night to Jesus because he didn't want to be seen. That there was a conflict between him being in this ruling council and coming to Jesus. And the reason was this is the ruling council who perceived Jesus as a threat and would ultimately kill Jesus. So there's this uh, tension in the story here. So Nicodemus comes at night, and what he says to Jesus is really interesting. He says, um, Rabbi, which is a term of uh, respect, and he's being very generous here in his attitude. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. who has, He's a teacher from God. And also um, acknowledging Jesus in that way. And then he says, for no one could perform the miracles if they weren't from God that you do. So um, really, he's paying Jesus a lot of respect. He's very generous in spirit. He has a great attitude. 
And uh, we could surmise, I'm going to just pause and, and look at this thing here a little bit, but we could surmise two things. One is that he's really attracted to Jesus. And if you have found yourself to be very attracted to Jesus but haven't made that commitment to him, well, you're not alone. That's been going on for a long time. So there's something, he, he, you know, whatever, the, he could see something in Jesus that was different. And secondly, though, that he is going to have a very, very difficult time giving up his identity structure, the places from which he receives his identity in life, and he is a respected man in the community. He's probably older, because he uses that, that word in verse 4. And, you know, just imagine wearing the robes, and he's kind of one of those people that people would look up to. That is the, the image that we have of Nicodemus. His identity structures are dependent, dependent upon him being in this group of 70 men who tell him who he is. And we all have that in our lives. We have people who tell us who we are, remind us who we are. And when you're a pastor, you know, it happens that way. Um, And um, mostly good, you know, not always, but mostly good. So uh, just think about where your identity structures are in your life. And the reason that I I focus on this is because when when I became a Christian at age 24, this is the battle that was going on in me. I realized I was attracted to Jesus. It took quite a while, actually, for, for me to, to make a commitment to Jesus. But I couldn't, I couldn't imagine myself leaving my identity structure over here, which told me who I was and in my family and in uh, my business relationships and my friendships and all of that stuff that was so powerful in my life. And to, to come over here to another identity structure that said something different about me, that was very, very different about me. And if you make that, trans, that, that journey over here, you can become known as a fanatic or worse, right? You know, you know, am, I, am I identifying anything here that anybody else has found to be true? I mean, this is the stuff of the human heart, and there's different ways that it plays out, but that's the, that's the dilemma that Nicodemus is facing here. Um, and the question is, um, which is stronger? The power of culture, from which those identity structures come, or the power of Jesus? I'm going to put it that way pretty boldly. I'm going to probably make us all feel a little guilty, but then I'm going to build us back up. You okay with that? At least it's better order, right, than the other. But we do tend to get these, these, uh, these things that tell us who we are. Well, and, and students, I, I'm talking to you at school too. The people that tell us who we are and remind us who we are in, you know, you're, you're on the soccer team or you're, you're this pos- in this position at work. Those places in life where we get identity are so strong that anything that seems like a threat to them is someplace that we would rather avoid. Now here's the Here's the, the kicker here. If you, if you haven't picked up on it, there's an irony. And that is that Nicodemus was not a follower of Christ and he was wrestling with this. And all of us, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make this assumption, okay? 
probably not true, but all of us here would say, I'm a follower of Christ, and we have the same struggles. Isn't that weird? I mean, there's at least irony there. So, uh, just uh, you know, some questions about this. Um, do we value the opinion of others or the opinions of others more than we value those people coming to know the God who loves them? I mean, that's a that's a penetrating question. Do we? Um, value the words of Jesus more or less than social status. These are the things that were going on inside of Nicodemus, and I think they're common to us. Okay, so fear. Let's get that one out of the way. You ready to move on? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Anytime, right? All right. Um, let me... Let me focus on the previous story here before we do. Can I get that next slide up there? This is right before the Nicodemus story. And it, it, it makes sense out of what happens next. So Jesus is in Jerusalem, and many people saw the signs that he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. I should have underlined that too. Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So first of all, he would not entrust himself to them. Implied in that is that he doesn't need other people's affirmation to keep his identity structure rooted in his heavenly Father. Unlike us, right? I mean, we struggle. With, we just we just confess. We all struggle with that. So Jesus, there's something about Jesus where he doesn't need to entrust himself to the opinions of others. And then it says down at the bottom, for he knew what was in each person. He knows what's in... So here's why I'm bringing this up, is that he knows when Nicodemus comes to him, and by the way, it is Nicodemus seeking Jesus out, not vice versa. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. When Nicodemus comes to him and says all these things that are kind of like flattery a little bit, I went, I, uh, this is totally, this came to my mind. This is what happens sometimes, and I don't know whether this is worth sharing, but I, I went, this is kind of cool. I went back Thursday night, Patty and I went down to Olympia, and the guy that bought my business in 1995, and so I could do what I'm doing right now, <laughs> planning a church, uh, we went to Alaska and all that, but he, he had his, the 30th year celebration of the business, because it had been 30 years since I started it, and he wanted me to be there. And you know what people were, I had, I heard this from two people, you don't look any older. <laughs> you, don't, you don't think I like to hear that? <laughs> and then my second thought is, what do they want from me? <laughs> yeah. Well, think about that for Jesus here. I mean, what, is, what does this guy want from Jesus? He's, he's being a little over the top, a little, almost flattery. You're from God, you do great miracles. Rabbi, all this respect. Jesus can see right into his heart. He sees what we identified earlier. He sees this battle that's going on. I'm attracted to you, but I have my way of looking at life, and I can't reconcile them. And Jesus sees right into him. And then um, the non sequitur. Um, what you would expect if this were 
uh, I guess, a secular or a non-non-secular, what you'd expect from Jesus would be something like, Nicodemus, thank you so much. Those are very nice words from you. You have a great attitude, and I think you and I can work together. But instead, Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, we've heard that too many times to realize how that must have come across to, to, to Nicodemus. I mean, obviously, from the text, he's scratching his head. What does that mean? How can, a, how can a man be born again when he's as old as I am? How can he be born again? And what Jesus is saying to him, and this is, this is another way to look at it, Jesus is saying... You're going to have to come in by the same way as the prisoners, the broken people, the pimps, the prostitutes. Same way. You're, you're up here in this culture that gives you value and status and identity. And look at those people down there who don't have any of that. And you're going to have to come in the same door. You're going to have to repent of your righteousness. You know, that, that's the hardest thing to repent of, is it not? I found it much easier to repent of sin than to repent of righteousness. This is really hard. Nicodemus came with the idea of just seeking some maybe uh, improvement in his life, some incremental growth in his life. He's not, he feels like he's not quite there. I just need to be topped off. And Jesus says, your tank is completely empty. There's nothing in there worth value. Whew. It's not what he wanted to hear. You must be born again. And he walks away, apparently. We don't, we're going to come back to his story in a second. But he walks away. Now, here's a question. Do, do, did Jesus bless him? You have to hold your answer on that one. But did he feel like he'd been blessed, or did he feel like the guy that, whose neighbor is noisy in the morning, you know? And I don't think he's feeling real blessed right now. He must be born again. All right, so let's just focus in on the, the three things here that maybe would be helpful for us as we think about people on our blessed list. These names here of people that you have... Uh, written down and are praying for. I'm reminding you of that. Don't give up. And I'll tell you why you shouldn't give up. In my pocket, if I can find it, I've got two tablets. And I, I looked at the bottle and I thought, this is, it's, it's not a great example because they're so small, but I want you to know that there's something about these particular tablets that you can buy at uh, Rite Aid. They are time-released. And the gospel is time-released. And when you heard Terry's story, you heard that, right? So think of the time-release aspect to the gospel. Um, Nicodemus, we, you know, it seemed like not much traction there in his heart. But if we go forward... It's at least a year. We don't know exactly, but in John chapter 7 at the end, uh, would you go ahead and, and get that up on the screen? Uh, John 7. I think I missed, need to go further here. There we go. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier. You remember that? Earlier? That would be chapter 3. This is a year later or whatever. It's a long time later. 
Jesus who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, meaning he got his identity there, that identity structure thing we were talking about, asked the, the, the group at large, his peers, who were condemning Jesus in their uh, words, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Now, I, w- I want you to, in the context of this, I want you to hear what Nicodemus is doing. In, with, it's hard to do this. I don't, if, you're a, if you're a kid in a classroom and you're having to stand up uh, against a bully or whatever it is at work, you found something that's not right in the books and you're going to, what are you going to do? when there's this peer pressure, social pressure that is part of your identity, what are you going to do? And Nicodemus is standing up for Jesus. And it's bold. They reply back at him. Remember the fear that we have of of our peers is that we would be scoffed at, ridiculed, humiliated, and they do exactly that. Are you from Galilee? Do you know if you're from Galilee? That's like... I always use Muckleteo as my example. No, not Muckleteo. What's the one down south? Tuckwilla. Tuckwilla. That means you're from Tuckwilla. Or there's probably some place in eastern Washington I could pick on. Uh, but it, it's that place where, which doesn't apply to Tuckwilla, but it's that rural place where the Hicks live. That's Galilee. It's a socially inferior place to be from. You got it? So there's a slam there. Are you from Galilee too? Meaning Jesus was from there and he's inferior. Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee, which technically they are wrong. There are prophets in the Old Testament from Galilee, but who's going to argue with your, these guys? You know. So it's hard to stand up. But what you're seeing here is this time-release formula thing going on inside of Nicodemus. And we get another picture of him in John chapter 19 where Jesus Christ is crucified. It's on that Friday when Jesus is crucified and he does something along with his friend Joseph of Arimathea. They come and they take, not many people handled the dead body of Jesus. Nicodemus was one of the two. And maybe, maybe the women later, but uh, it's, it's these two men. And by the way, men... Wealthy men never handle dead bodies in that culture. Sorry, women, but it was your job. Or slaves. This is just not something that men would do. They risk their reputations for the sake of Jesus. Now, I just want you to see here that there's this time release thing going on inside, and we can say, I think, with a pretty much, a lot of assurance that Nicodemus was born again very, very slowly. And women, sometimes you know what labor can be like when it goes on and on and on. It's, it was a slow, slow birth. But he comes around. Terry's story uh, illustrates that as well. Uh, my story illustrates that. I mean, it, it doesn't just happen overnight. That's why we pray. That's why we do all these things up here. And once in a while, you get to share the story that puts it over the edge, the tipping point of faith. So there's the first uh, takeaway for us is to trust in the slow process, the slow work of the Spirit. Jesus said, my Father is always at work. Do you believe that? Is Jesus right or is he wrong? (laughs) You see, 
He's always at work. If that weren't true, none of us would be here. The next story uh, in the Bible that I want to use to illustrate from just another point, just to draw a contrast, the next story in the Bible is the story of the woman at the well. And I want you to see, we don't have time to go into the whole thing, but I just want you to see this contrast. So Nicodemus was this man who was part of the culture to lead in Jerusalem, had it all together, would have been in the envy of many, and he had to come down. Well, we're down there now. This woman at the well, she's in Samaria, which is uh, not a good place to be from. If you're a Jew, you say that's, yeah, that's, that's way, that's, Galilee is low, but that's, that's further, that's, that's way, way down there. She, and not only is she uh, a woman in, from Samaria, but she's a moral failure. Not, you see how, you know, that, you can't say that about Nicodemus. He's not a moral failure. But this woman, and so her, her social, uh, her, her uh, identity structure would have had included a lot of voices that told her that she was bad. Whereas his would have said, you're good. You're good. How could God not love a guy like you? And she would have heard, God could never love me. And Jesus, because he knows each person, and he knows you, and he knows me, he speaks differently to her. He doesn't tell her that she must be born again. In fact, the only time Jesus ever says that is to Nicodemus. He uses different... Uh, so there's a clue for us right there. Well, she's at a well. There's water at the well. He picks up on that metaphor. He talks about living water, that he's the living water. And that she is thirsty, really. If she would just stop and look inside of herself, she would see how thirsty she is. And it's not, at least from the story, who knows all the stuff that had gone up to her, into her life from that point, God was at work. But when Jesus comes, it's an immediate response to his grace when he says, I am that living water. If you drink from me, you will never be thirsty again. Very different. She responds immediately, and what does she do? She goes and she tells all of the people in her village about Jesus, and she asks them to come out and see for themselves. She is known as the first evangelist in the Bible. Isn't that an amazing thing? That this moral failure is the first evangelist in the Bible? Beautiful story. But it's, it, it's just different. And the person that's in front of you, it, yes, the, it may take a long time, or it may take a short time, or it may mean talking about being born again, or it may mean talking about living water, or the hundred other metaphors that are, you can find in Scripture. That's why it's good to know your Scripture. And then just the metaphors that life presents. Um, they're there. So uh, we learn from the scriptures how we might present our story or God's story to a person who's right in front of us. Now the third thing I want to say, and this is where I started and we're going to have a prayer time, is, and I want you to really think about this because it's really important to you sharing your story, is to believe that you have a story. And I find that uh, a lot of Christians, and maybe it's because they grew up in a church, they don't think they have a story, which is kind of weird, really. 
You'd think that there would be a story that would be coming out of that community, but, but people just kind of have the, they use the, maybe the, they use the word just. I'm just a kind of a garden variety Christian, and I can't remember when I wasn't, and therefore, and everything kind of gets mucky in the mind, and all I'm saying to you, and I believe the scriptures would be saying to you, is it's always a miracle. You can't, in fact, here's another way to say it, you can't be a Christian without being a miracle. And it's not that it's, it, yet there's a, there's a part of it where we participate in the story, but it's something that happens to you. Born again, drinking that water, the living water, it happens to you. It's, that, that, that's what this is all about. And it's a miracle that God has found you through whatever means, whatever means and however long it took, whether your story is more like Nicodemus or the woman at the well or somebody else in, that Jesus, he meets in chapter five, there's another, uh, the Roman centurion. I mean, you can read these stories, but it's always different. You're unique, they're unique. The idea is that God is always at work and you are a miracle. And unless you believe you're a miracle, you aren't gonna tell your story because everybody wants to hear a miracle story. So I would encourage you to write your story out, tell somebody you know who is part of a faith community, and focus in on what God has done in you and what he continues to do in you. He is a God who is always at work. I want us to pray, and let's just go ahead and let the Holy Holy Spirit do his work in us right now. Our Heavenly Father, We put ourselves, our real selves, before the real you. And these questions, Lord, do we value the opinion of others more than valuing them as seekers of you, finders of you? Is life in Jesus worth more or less than social status? Lord, we put our hearts uh, before you. You are gentle and you are gracious and you don't cast anyone away who is coming towards you. And your children, Lord, together we confess this morning that we do struggle with fear of what others think. We confess that, honestly. And we also would want to, in our best selves, before you put aside that fear and allow you, allow your Holy Spirit to open up areas of our hearts that have never maybe been tapped into before, where we could take those little steps. And remembering the people, Lord, that you have put into our lives, our friends and relatives and acquaintances, neighbors, coworkers, those people that are uniquely situated and choreographed by you and by your spirit for a purpose and you have placed us in the midst of them. Oh Lord, just that we might be bold enough to pray, Lord, use me. Use my story and make our stories clear to us, Lord. First, the miracles that are there. That being born again is not about morality or politics or emotions. It is about a new reality 
It's about seeing the kingdom of God, about seeing life differently. So Lord, come and do your work, for you are always at work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.